Looking to live a happier, healthier, and longer life? Then this podcast is for you. You're listening to the Primo Wellness Podcast, the podcast that will help you discover how you can live with more vigor, age gracefully, and prevent illness. Listen to interviews with leading professionals on today's new trends and techniques in integrative medicine, nutrition, health, and wellness. Here is today's Primo host. Well, hello, everyone. Dr. Paul Primo here once again on the banks of Bayou St. John in beautiful New Orleans. They actually cut the grass today, so there's the smell of newly mown grass. There's always a beautiful smell in a warm summer here in New Orleans. I'm sitting here today with Dr. Philip Miller. Hey, Phil, how you doing, man? Good, thanks. Good. Thanks so much for the invitation. To be oh, here. yeah. It's so good of you to be here. I really appreciate it. Dr. Philip Miller is a board-certified facial plastics and reconstructive surgeon who practices both in uh, Manhattan mm-hmm. and here down in New Orleans. Dr. Miller was trained at University of Massachusetts in med school. Are you from Massachusetts? Uh, sort of all over the Northeast, but did my training up there primarily. Okay. So that's a lot different from, from the folks that we've spoken to thus far. Not the we, LSU crowd. We have, yeah, we have, right. a, we have a Yankee in the room. All right. <laughs> Dr. Miller did his internship and residency at NYU. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the city. In uh, otolaryngology, or head and neck surgery, commonly known as ENT. ENT. And then did a fellowship. In facial plastic surgery out in Oregon. That's right. Had you spent any time out west before that? Uh, no, that was around it. OHSU at the time uh, was a really large facial plastic surgery institution. Okay. It serviced all of Portland, Southern Washington, Northern California, and like the entire state of Idaho. So it was a really great place to train. Now, when you went to medical school, did you know you wanted to do plastic surgery or how did you get to that decision? I, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon. It was Hawkeye Pierce. Maybe for those of your uh, <laughs> audience who knows the, the oh, show great. MASH, I saw Hawkeye Pierce. I'm like, that's a guy I want to be. So I knew I wanted to go into surgery, but it was really just a matter of time before looking around at the specialties. And I said, I wanted it to be something that I could be creative. My mom was an artist, so I wanted to bring some artistic sense to it. And uh, I wanted to not only affect the physical, but also sort of the emotional aspect. And I right. saw that plastic surgery gave that capability. Right, um, sure. ENT allowed me to jump into that. Right. And there's a difference between facial plastic surgeons and sort of plastic surgeons who train through the general surgery pathway. And I don't think everyone realizes that. Can you tell us a little bit of the distinction there? Um, It has to do with the training. So there are facial plastic surgeons who train in otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, and then subspecialize specifically in facial plastics, never having operated anywhere else on the body. Right. Uh, And then you have your general plastic surgeons who they have sort of done their training over the entire body, not necessarily specializing in any one particular area, but often afterwards, they may choose an area of expertise. Gotcha. Right. From start to finish, you're all about the the Above the shoulders. Right. Gotcha. You know, some of the guys who have been kind enough to come on the show have talked a little bit about their training. And that's such a a wonderful time. It's so stressful and, you know, you're learning a lot. But there's sometimes some some really interesting things that happen to people. Can you, you know, tell us a little bit maybe about your training? Well, there there is a connection here because I had listened to one of your other episodes and you had talked about Charity Hospital. Right. And that the only hospital a little older than Charity was Bellevue Hospital in New York. And that's where I trained. And I I remember the first day I walked in, one of the nurses looked at me and she was from down south. I hope I don't butcher the accent. She looked at me and she just said, Dr. Miller, welcome. 
If you have any questions, just ask me. If you need anything, just tell me, and I'll tell you how to live without it. We don't have it. <laughs> there you and go. That was what was like training at Bellevue. It was phenomenal, phenomenal right, training. Right, right. MD means make do. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, terrific. And so you go out to Oregon, you do your fellowship in plastic surgery, and then I know you you have a, a you know a big plastic surgery practice in Manhattan, Gotham Plastic Surgery. Was that where you went directly? When After my uh, fellowship training, I came back to NYU School of Medicine, gotcha. where I was on the faculty there. And I still remain on the faculty at NYU, even though I left in around 04 to, into private practice. But I was there training residents and fellows for around seven years at NYU, and then eventually left to uh, start a Gotham plastic surgery gotcha. in, in Manhattan. Gotcha. And you're still very active in the training of residents. In fact, you're the program director for uh, facial plastic surgery residents. For the fellowship program. For the yes. fellowship program. Yes. Excuse yes, I'm me. Honored. That's right. That's right. And yeah, that's a big, that's a big well, deal. Thank you. Yeah. We have a, a, you know, certainly a big wig in the, on the show today. I'm, I'm really pleased to have you talk to us about what you do and how it helps people. Because I really do think that people underestimate how life-changing some of the procedures that you guys do could be. You know, I had a friend in high school and his older sister had a very large nose. It was just the, the most prominent feature on her face by far. And she just went through hell as a kid That's and as an adolescent. Yeah. And yeah. She, was, she was ostracized and teased and she had a nose job, rhinoplasty, at the age of maybe, I don't know, 21, 22. And I'll tell you, it changed her life. That's one of the reasons why I went into rhinoplasty in particular, besides also just aging face as part of my facial plastic surgery uh, procedures. But rhinoplasty is a really unique operation. It's very complex. It's unique to each individual, though two noses may look alike. The underlying anatomy is completely different on the two mm, noses. And wow. what you have to do, the techniques that you need to employ in order to fix that defect or deformity is different on every single patient. So you really have to bring your game every day. You cannot rely on just one technique. And the ultimate effect is not only one in which we're storing self-esteem or giving someone self-confidence, but as we sort of discussed previously, it also helps people breathe better. And so they can actually have some functional improvement right. as well. Right. Now you're, you're dealing there with probably a procedure known as septoplasty or dealing with pa That's patient's correct. nasal septum. Tell us a little bit about, you know, you hear people telling, I have a deviated septum. What does that mean and, and, and what kind of problems can that cause? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, everyone has a deviated nasal septum. I mean, <laughs> I don't think anyone born really has a straight, straight septum. And what is the septum? A septum is a separation between two cavities. We have septums in our heart, which separate the, the ventricles or the atrium. And a septum in the nose is simply separating the right and the left nostril. Gotcha. And that should be straight, but sometimes it can be bent, it can be curved, it can have some bony outgrowths or cartilaginous outgrowths. And that all impinge the airway so that when we breathe in, instead of a nice large tunnel for us to get a good breath sure. of air, it's it's narrowed and that that impairs our ability to breathe through their nose. Hence, oh, I can't breathe. Maybe I have a deviated nasal septum. Gotcha. Right. And you can fix that at the same time you're doing the rhinoplasty, the cosmetic changes to the nose. You can also make people breathe better at the same Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Right. And that's impressive. Interesting story. I, I happened to be working at a surgery center here in New Orleans uh, maybe a month ago. And I was assigned a case to do um, the anesthesia for a rhinoplasty for um, plastic surgeon who I did not know. 
Phil Miller. Who's Phil Miller? Right. And you've New, been here for a long time. I've been here. I mean, 20 years in practice. And, you know, New Orleans is a small town. You know, I know I or, or I know or know of probably 80, 90 percent of the surgeons. So I get in the room and, and we meet, you know, we, mm-hmm. and he was a nice guy and seems to, you know, he's and I'm thinking maybe this is a young person, you know, just out in practice, someone who's new. And I'm like, no, you know, he looks about yeah, we're, we're probably about the same age. But, and so go in the room, starts to doing the surgery. And as an anesthesiologist, I see a lot of cases. I'm in the OR every day. And it's really easy to understand who knows what the heck they're doing and who's maybe, you know, earlier in their practice struggling. And I'm like, this guy is very good. Wow. This guy knows what he's doing. And I'm like, how do I not know this guy? How do I not know that this is, you know, this is obviously an experienced, talented plastic surgeon. He's confident in the room. He's making all the nurses who barely know him, you know, confident and comfortable in the room. And so I'm on my phone and I look up to see, you know, where did this guy come from? And as a matter of fact, I see that he has a practice in Manhattan. So we began to chat about how you ended up in an operating room in New Orleans. And I think it's a great story. You got to tell us. Well, yeah, I I, I do love New Orleans, yes, but I came to New Orleans for love and not necessarily Uh, love of New Orleans. True Um, love. uh, It's true love. I met someone who lives down here and she, though she has a child, uh, same age as my twins who are now in their 20s. Gotcha. Uh, Another one is um, of the age that he's still in high school or so. So she's not going anywhere. And I said, well, I'm not letting you go. So (laughs) if you can't come up there, I'm coming down there. That's a fabulous story. That's terrific. And and she's a great girl. And you know her, which was was your colleague. We have a family connection and and she's been a colleague and, uh, you know, person that I've known for a long time. She's a sweetheart. Her her brother, who I, I... you know, I know very well, and he's a great guy, just a great family. That it's a funny story. So we're we're in right, the operating we're in the room. room together, and I'm like, "Do you know?" And right, he's just yeah. laughing. <laughs> yeah, of As course. A matter of fact. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> so that was that was fun. And and I'll t- I just want to say thank you so very much for that very kind compliment. That really means a lot to us as surgeons because we know that you guys are in every single room. We know you are looking over our shoulder. And that you're being able to assess that guy versus that guy versus that guy. Right. And that's that's a really generous comment yeah, well, and, 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 and compliment. So thank you very much. Oh, I don't take that lightly. Yeah, you're quite welcome. And, you know, I, I, I don't know everything that the surgeons do. I'm certainly not trained as a surgeon. I don't know all of the techniques. But you can see confidence. You can see uh, an ability to make good decisions. You can see a steady progress through the surgery. And it really is impressive. And I think it, it definitely comes from experience, you know, and, and, you know, we were talking earlier, I have told many folks that be very cautious of someone early in their training because there still is a big learning curve in surgery. What what was that like for you, Phil, early on in your career when you're just kind of, you know, you, you finish your training and you're supposed to be the guy and you walk in the room and you know, you, there's, there's now, there's no, no, no one, no senior surgeon, you know, to ask questions yeah. of. We, we've all been there, right? With the first time you gave anesthesia, sure. the first time I did surgery, and uh, yes, had I been in an operating room before alone, or maybe the senior resident or fellow, but I always knew there was someone who had my back. But right. I still remember the first time walking in there, knowing it's me, and it's 
just me. All right. Um, and so to s- some of the rules that I always put into place was, you know, only do what you think you can do. Right. Don't don't overstep your bounds. Gotcha. Right. Second one was that I always wrote down any questions I had during the surgery in a little book. Because inevitably, if you're really honest with yourself, and you have to be brutally honest if you want to sure, improve, sure. if you're going to be really brutally honest, you're going to leave the operating room with some doubts. Did I gotcha. put the stitch in correctly? Did I do this? When you're, when you're younger. And I wrote those all down in a book on the particular patient when I would see them a week later, because by then you're going to forget that you even had those concerns. You're right. more concerned about the case that you did just 12 hours before. Sure. I would look at those questions. I would reassure myself. I would learn and progress and move on. And I think that's so vital. I tell that to all my residents and fellows to this day, write, write down all those doubts and questions you had right after the surgery. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen that technique, but that's, I think that that's very powerful. And I've, I mean, I, I, I can tell you even still today, I mean, there, there's some cases that I, you know, I'm going to bed and I'm thinking, Oh, goodness, what could I have done, you know, differently or or done better? But that kind of dedication is the difference between someone who thinks they know what they're doing versus someone who's going to keep a patient safe like yourself. And And I I sometimes, you know, I guess I'm, I'm a little lucky in the specialty that I've chosen because for anesthesiologists, there seems at least most of the times in practice, there's a lot of us around. When I walk into a hospital, there may be three, four, five, six, ten anesthesiologists working. And when I get in trouble, I can call someone and say, hey, what do you think about this? This patient's not doing this. I'm thinking I'm going to do, you know, X, Y, Z. What do, what do you think about that? Any ideas? But I, I feel bad sometimes for my surgical colleagues who, you know, we're all going to have problems. We're all going to mm-hmm. get into challenges. And especially the younger surgeons who haven't maybe seen this problem on their own before. It's really stressful. It's it, really it, tough. It, it really is. And there's an expression in, it may not be a good one, but there's an expression <laughs> in surgery that, quote, add this technique to your armamentarium of, of solutions. Right. And I'm sort of very lucky. My, my, one of my best friends told me that I was always really capable of fixing anything when I was younger. And I still have that knack of being able to fix just about anything. And he said, I only have that because I used to break everything. So I'd have to <laughs> fix it. But I, I look at anything that's broken and I, I sort of look at it almost from a cerebral and academic kind of fascination going, huh, well, hmm, well, how, how are we going to fix that one? And so I'm fortunate that when I'm in the operating room and something isn't necessarily going as planned, rather than getting anxious, rather than getting nervous, I just sort of look at it and go, wow, well, gee, huh? Hmm. Well, I'm sure I've read about that somewhere. And right. oh, oh yeah, well, let me just right. try this. And another wonderful tool is you don't try a technique more than two or three times. Gotcha. If you if it's not working the first or second time, it's not the right technique. It's not your skill set. It's the technique. Right. Change the technique. I'm sure yeah. you must have the same. Oh changing my gosh. Graft to a miller or maybe. A- well, I do. I do have some stories, you know, and I have seen colleagues suffer trying to do something. Over it's and not over. going right. well. They can't do it well. And that's when you run into problems, mm-hmm. of, of course. And that's great advice. Um, absolutely. You know, Phil, I, I do want you to tell us a little bit more about the procedures and the work that you're doing, because I think that people are going to want to hear more about rhinoplasty. I know you do the aging face as well. You're doing facelifts and stuff. 
Tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing. What do you like to do? And what kind of outcomes are, are you seeing in your patients? Sure. Uh, we'll talk about rhinoplasty and septoplasty. Maybe I can come back another time and talk about facelifts because I do love that's a whole other topic that I can that I can talk about. But for rhinoplasty, it's really about identifying two primary issues. One is what don't you like about the way your nose looks, but also what isn't working about your nose? Sure. Uh, how are you not breathing well? Do you have pain, pressure, headaches? Is there frequent episodes of sinusitis, et cetera? And while I don't treat some of those diagnoses, sure. uh, I will take care of some of the problems like primarily nasal obstruction. Gotcha. Uh, the process is really listening to the patient. I think that's so important. Um, I do a lot of revision rhinoplasty done uh, where the primary rhinoplasty was done elsewhere. And I would say the primary complaint most patients have, which brings them into my office to fix what they had elsewhere, is, you know, the doctor just didn't listen to me. I Uh kept saying this or that, and he didn't listen to me, or she didn't listen to me. And so to me, the most important part is hearing the patient, hearing what it is that they want, and then taking their vision. And I create a post-operative image for them in three three views, the front, the side, and the three-quarter, and say, is this, this is what I'm hearing, because this isn't a verbal solution. Your interpretation of make it smaller may not be my interpretation right. of make it smaller. Right. Your, oh, can you turn it up a little bit, may not be my, it's a visual thing. So I want to show you what I think you're saying. Right. And we'll both look at that photograph. And once we both agree that that's what it is, I'll take that into the operating room. Gotcha. And I'll perform the surgery. Gotcha. Okay. What kind of recovery is to be expected after the surgeries? Because I haven't done uh, that many uh, rhinoplasty surgeries. I haven't seen a lot of those patients post-op. How much pain do they have? Do they have breathing difficulty through the nose for a time? Do you have to have nasal packing in? What what, what should they expect after surgery? Surprisingly, it's it's not painful. It's and if anything, there's sort of a pressure or a fullness as if you have a bad cold. Gotcha. I do not put packing on the inside of the nose. That was one of the biggest complaints patients had maybe 30 or 40 years uh-huh. ago. Okay. But we know better now, so we don't have to pack the nose. There is a cast on the nose and some tape, and that's intended to decrease the swelling and bruising. That comes off in around one week. And the sutures that are placed are all dissolvable, so none of the sutures have to be removed either. Getting back to how the operation is done, Mm -hmm. uh, the nose is made of bone, the upper third, sort of firm cartilage, the middle third, and sort of loose cartilage on the lower third. Gotcha. And the idea is raise the skin, manipulate the bone cartilages, get it into a form that looks like what the patient wants, and then close it on up. So you can make a small incision basically at the the bottom of the nose, actually where near where it meets the lip. Correct. And so there's not much scarring because you can actually lift the nose to get into all the places that you need to get to. Exactly. Most of the incisions are hidden on the inside of the nostril. And then, as you mentioned, connected along that piece of tissue connecting both nostrils. Right. Yeah. And I, I think some people are confused exactly about how how is it done, you know, because you would imagine that, you know, to, you know, an untrained observer that you might have to make an incision on the nose or that sort of thing. Right. And an analogy I sort of say is imagine that there are a couple of objects that are under the sheets of your bed and you have to get to them, but you can't go from the top where gotcha. the pillows are. Right. So how would you do it? You would sort of go at the base. You'd sort of pull the blanket and the sheets out from under sure. between the mock box mattress and then sort of come around and grab it and pull it out that way. Gotcha. That's how That's how it's done. Sure. 
And, and that makes a lot of sense. I, I think that that's understandable to, to, to patients. Is it different if you add the septoplasty to the rhinoplasty? Does that make the, the pain or the recovery any different? It can make the congestion inside the nose perhaps perhaps a little worse, but then again, it could also improve it because if you're not being able to breathe preoperatively, the septoplasty actually now gives you the opportunity to breathe. So it's not entirely as if it will prolong the recovery period or make it even worse. For the listeners out there, Dr. Miller does have his own podcast. It's a plastic surgery podcast. Excellent. I highly recommend it. And I know you had one of the episodes where you talked about who should not have rhinoplasty? And that's that. That when I saw that, I was like, "We got to get this guy. Out. This guy. <laughs> I, I just love. That's a wonderful episode. You know, I just thought that that was a very thoughtful episode. I really loved hearing it. it just give us. I know we can't go over the over the whole thing, but give us the 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 cliff notes about. What are those patients who maybe should not have this procedure? Yeah, it's just you wouldn't expect that to come from a, a plastic surgeon, right? <laughs> you know, here's why you shouldn't get it done. But we're, I, I, I broadcast that for two reasons, because you're not really helping yourself as the patient. And I'm certainly not in a position that I want to be in if right. you're having the surgery. Right. You want to do it for yourself. Changing something aesthetically should be because you want to do it, not because you're motivated to either please someone else or because you're being forced to do it by someone else. So if you're doing it to become more popular, if you're doing it because you think you want to get a job, if you're doing it because you think you'll – because your family member is encouraging you to get it done, if your spouse – those are all the wrong reasons because – why? Because afterwards, you are going to assess – the results based on, did I get a job? Sure. <laughs> right. Are right. my friends telling me I look better? Is my husband or spouse nicer to right. me? Did I get more what? likes on Instagram? Did I get or? more likes on Instagram? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I do have a great, this is a great story. Okay. A patient came to me one time and, and I said, well, what can I do for you? Right. And usually they say, I want my tip up. I want my bump down, whatever. Right, she says right. to me, I just want to look as good as I do on Instagram. <laughs> True story. I said, what? And then she said, I just want to look as good as I do on Instagram. And I said, well, may I see your Instagram? She hands it over to me and I look down at it and I look up at her and I look down at these pictures and I look up at her and I'm saying, I'm sorry, is this you? And she said, yeah, it's me. And I looked down at it again and I said, <laughs> did you apply a, f- is this makeup? Right, Are you applying right, right. a filter? And many of your listeners may know there's an app called Facetune and uh-huh. Facetune changes your entire face. It like moves your eyes. <laughs> it, it moves your oh entire mouth. I looked at her and I said, this is impossible. <laughs> this isn't changing your nose. I said, this is repositioning your orbits. Wow. <laughs> it oh my was God. crazy. Right. Yeah. You have to, you have to um, take her whole cranium apart. That's and, right. And, yeah, it was a redo. cranioplasty, not a rhinoplasty. <laughs> right. That's funny. Now, Dr. Miller is quite a Renaissance man. And he's also an inventor. So he, we were in the operating room and he had this little thing uh, sitting on the patient that, that he was using that he actually invented himself. And uh, tell us that story. That, that was uh, fascinating. Yeah. I, I um, just noticed that this one, I, I had this need one time for a procedure and I was looking down at and going, God, I wish I just had this device that could sort of do this or that. And uh, I just went to my desk afterwards and sketched it out and then found someone who could turn it into a 3D model and then uploaded it to a 3D printing site. The next thing you know, it it's a plastic demo version. And I 
made some changes again. And then a week later, I printed it in metal. You can do that. You can print <laughs> it in metal. You can print it in gold. And wow. I'm using it in the operating room. That's wild. Yeah, that is crazy. What is that crowdsourcing community like? I mean, I mean, how easy is that to, to access? So easy. I, I, I do love technology. That's a whole other side of me. Okay. And, and I love what this one gentleman said, which is that technology is at the state today where individuals can do what major corporations and na- nations had to do 30 or 40 years ago. And that's what crowdsourcing is. You just, you want anything, you can find someone who can help you, help you do it. Right. That's amazing. That, that was really amazing story. I I loved hearing it. Now, did you get your red beans today on, on Monday? It's Monday in New Orleans. You got to have some red beans. I certainly No, no, you didn't. Oh, wait a second. I had, I, wait, I, wait, I had a, I had a, I think I had a red bean mayonnaise <laughs> on my turkey sandwich. Oh my goodness, that's funny. Yeah, Every, oh my god, I've I've had so many hospital cafeteria red beans uh, since I've been to the city. That that was that was funny. You know, the first time I think I I, I really understood how important red beans were to the culture um, in New Orleans. When I came to to the city, I was a college student. You know, you're. Yeah, pretty poor, right? You know, we're oh, looking yeah. for um, oh, all yeah. the places where you might get some cheap food or free food. And on Mondays, all the bars uptown had red beans, a pot of red beans on the bar. Oh, my God, it was fantastic. That's brilliant. That It was so fantastic. It, it, it was uh, just a lot of fun, you know, just get everybody, go out on a Monday night. Well, I, I, I'm still learning. I'm learning about the red beans. I'm learning. I still get <laughs> half the names. Some might say... 70% of the name is totally right. wrong, but I'm working on it. Now, you got to get this it. right. Are you a Saints fan? Am I saying? A Saints fan. Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, yep, yeah. Yep, well, yep. Oh, go. boy. I know, right. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not foolish <laughs> enough to say, oh, absolutely. Hopefully, we're going to get our act together this year. New coach. Mm-hmm. You know, we got a lot of new players. So, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll do something. It'll be fun to watch. Yeah, it'll be fun to watch. Well, Dr. Philip Miller... Thank you so My much pleasure. once again for coming. It was a great discussion. Love to have you back to talk about facelifts. That would be fantastic. I'd be honored. Yeah. I'd be honored. Thank you. The Primo Wellness Podcast is proudly sponsored by Spa Domo. Visit spadomo.com. So everyone, subscribe, like, share, whatever you do with your social media crew, and we'll see you next time. Thanks a bunch. This episode of the Primo Wellness Podcast has ended. But your journey towards living a happier, healthier, and longer life continues. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Thank you for listening.